Welcome to the CSBS podcast, a podcast series of the Center for Social and Behavioral Science at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. The purpose of the podcast is to showcase our researchers, give voice to our community, and if we can, have some fun along the way. We are researchers, practitioners, and all-around social and behavioral science nerds. We're glad you're here for the journey. The disappearance of newspapers and local news organizations has been ongoing for many years. In this episode of the CSBS podcast, we will examine the historical changes that journalism is undergoing and what this means for news inequality. Dr. Nikki Usher, Associate Professor at the College of Media, talks with the CSBS research scientist Peter Ondish and Research Development Manager Kaylee Lucasina about her new book, News for the Rich, White and Blue, How Place and Power Distort American Journalism. The discussion will aid in understanding some of the key concepts from her book, such as cultural and existential importance of news, significance of location for journalism, the Goldilocks paradigm, and more. So thank you so much for joining us today, Nikki. We're really excited to be talking about uh, some of your recent work about the changing media and journalistic landscape in the United States. One of my favorite parts about reading your work has been kind of thinking about what the cultural and maybe existential importances of news is something that's more than just a vehicle through which people kind of consume facts. Can you kind of tell us a little bit more about, you know, what newspapers mean for, you know, a community society beyond just kind of the simple reporting of facts? Yeah. I mean, I think that in the current swell of misinformation and hyper-partisan media, it's really easy to think that the antidote is just more information and journalism is often viewed as that vehicle. But I think one of the most important ways that journalism functions in society, and let's just take a big event like the Olympics, right, which are happening. The Olympics are going to be broadcast on NBC for the first time in the morning, right? And we can be there live as we eat breakfast with the journalists seeing the Olympics unfold. And that's not information. That's the experience and excitement of watching the opening ceremonies of the Olympics, right? And so when we think about this more historically, news organizations, especially newspapers, can chronicle the history and culture of a place. And what's really interesting is a lot of newspapers that have had somewhat shaky records on rice have gone back to try to do corrective journalism to correct that history. So re-report it as if it were happening today and try to rectify some of these imbalances. But you can think of journalism as basically being, um, and newspaper, you know, local newspapers in particular, as being a record of civic and cultural life. And who gets left out of that record is also a very important question. Mm-hmm. And what do you think? It's, it's so interesting to think about that record. Like, what does that record kind of mean for, for somebody in a, let's say, like a small town, for example? Well, I think if we were to think about one of the small towns, maybe near the University of Illinois, right, um, one of the counties, what you get is you get pictures of your kids or grandkids playing sports. It marks somebody living, right, with a birth notice and when they eventually pass with an obituary. And it's a record that you were there and something happened and that somebody was there paying attention to your life. And I think that there's something really profound and remarkable about that. And one of the really interesting things, right, is that 
as everything becomes super digital and as these extremely small news organizations become really threatened with existential sort of survival, um, how we keep a hold of that history. I think that there's a lot of really interesting conversation in the digital humanities about that. It's it's such a, an interesting way of thinking about news and, and journalism. And it was one of the my favorite reasons why you know, we got to speak with you today. What kind of brought you down this research path? Yeah, so I look at news production. So how journalism actually gets made. So the way I do my research generally tends to be from going inside newsrooms or going with journalists to the site of coverage or just kind of talking constantly with with journalists. And this has usually been journalists at some of the highest levels of, of news media in the United States and, and the UK. So like the New York Times and NPR and so forth. And so this particular book I started on because I wanted to actually take that historical look. And I was really interested, you know, newsrooms are moving out of news buildings, right? The Chicago Tribune just moved out of the Tribune meeting. Isn't that profound? And so this is going to be kind of a meditation on that. But then in 2016, what really became clear to me was that the story about place wasn't just about the place of where newspapers were located. It was about the profound geographic polarization and social polarization in the United States around place and opportunity and how that was playing out from the very physical places that journalists were situated, but also sort of their cognitive constructs. And so the book became a lot bigger. It became about place and power and inequality in journalism. Yes, but also writ large. Could you talk a little bit more about this concept of the placeless guy as someone that's locationless, especially because of the current and ongoing pandemic? Many of us are seeing ourselves as more as placeless for for some, not all. But could you speak a little bit more to that? Well, so places can be virtual, right? So we are meeting in a virtual place right now and we're co-present and it has its own specific features or affordances is kind of the way we, the big word we use in the academy, right? So things work and don't work in certain ways, just like you might be situated at a table differently, right? Where I might not hear you as well. So I would be kind of careful about equating virtual places as not being places, because that is where community life unfolds. The whole point of Placeless Guy, and I got a lot of pushback because, but the thing is, there's always this dude in, whenever I talked about this book and the book's arguments, there was always this dude at the bar at the conference who would say, oh, well, you know, I just carry around my phone with me wherever I go. You know, I, I, I can be in Jakarta and still be reading the New York Times, you know. Um, oh, but by the way, I really like reading British news about the United States. I'm like, that's the point. Place matters. Place adds perspective. Place puts in certain, it creates certain blind spots and, and opens eyes in other ways. And so place is also privilege. And the people who are least constrained by the places they're in are among the most privileged. And you can think about this. Not everybody can work from home. We become virtually placed in the pandemic, but there are lots of people that still have to go to work every single day to do their jobs, right? So it often follows that the more financial capital you have, the more placeless you are. And one of the things I find really interesting is that the New York Times, which has been a research site of mine for a very long time, is that it's 
trying to get this placeless reader because it's marketing to a certain global class of elites that needs that same news and information, whether they're in Singapore or in London. But for those of us on the ground, what's really happening in our communities matters. We need to know what's going on and be aware of local issues. And so having some place-based journalism that tells us just basic things about daily life is absolutely critical. And, you know, I'm thinking about the old arguments about covering who's going to cover the school board if newspapers close. Let's be clear that certainly not every local newspaper has cared to cover things with the same grit and determination people in big metropolitan news organizations or national news organizations might imagine. So I want to be clear on that. But I think this placeless guy is a way of thinking about power and privilege and how you carry your power and privilege in a room with you wherever you go, right? And that's about race and class and opportunity. And this has to be part of the conversation about journalism because you have to think about who's making the news and what they carry with them and where they do it. This really leads into my next question. So much of your research findings and other other researchers' findings point to the reality that journalists really devote much of their news coverage and attention to the interests of the wealthy, So could you talk a little bit about how this has affected the news industry and maybe more importantly, how does this impact social inequities in particular communities? Yeah. So Kaylee, I think it's probably, you know, more than thinking about folks as like wealthy, I would think about power instead, right? And who, and so there's this We've been thinking in terms of in political science and political communication and journalism studies about how the knowns get covered more than the unknowns. And you have to cover everything the president says because it's the president. And that's kind of actually what got a lot of institutional news media into trouble because so much of what the former president would say was deeply problematic. But still, to try to tell them don't cover what the president says was like just talking to a brick wall. So I think that that's kind of what it is, is when you focus on the powerful to the exclusion of focusing on the powerless, right? Or when you cover the powerless, do it as like, oh, these poor people who live in this situation, this bad thing is happening to them. So you're an outsider looking from within rather than empowering people in those communities. What you end up doing is distorting what democracy is supposed to be about. And it doesn't mean it's like the end of democracy. It's just a different kind of democracy and a different kind of media that we're imagining where you get a lot of coverage about elites. And that's really important for other elites who need to know how to check the power of elites, but you kind of lose that other layer. So it's really a story about who has power and how that power is reified and reproduced by the news media. So to, to think about the, the placeless guy, it seems like he's just the kind of person who's on the one end of the power spectrum. In, in so far as they're this the person who has the, the privilege and the ability to, like, I, I'm not tethered to a certain place. Mm-hmm. Um, what's at the other end of that spectrum? And what's the experience like for folks that are more... Or what's like the the relevance of the changing journalistic landscape for them? So I think that, and I just want to go back to Placeless Guy for a second, because I like to think about it as hotels, 
So you go to one Hilton, like or a high end, I don't know, Ritz Carlton in one city. And that Ritz Carlton feels just like a Ritz Carlton in another city. And so the experience of just moving through the world without having to adapt to being in a new situation is kind of also an important aspect to this. On the other side, and there's this really wonderful sociologist, his name is Patrick Sharkey, and he talks, his book is actually called Stuck in Place. So if you think about being stuck in place as the way that housing and segregation and historical patterns of racial exclusion are instantiated in geography and how people with fewer opportunities aren't able to literally move, right? If they move, they don't have a home or they don't have enough money to move somewhere else to take a new opportunity. So what does that then mean in the larger context of journalism? Well, journalism is just one of many industries that is bound up in a larger geographic sorting of winners and losers. And that happens down at the level of journalism. So we can talk about the example of Youngstown, Ohio. And Youngstown, the Youngstown Vindicator had a pretty solid reputation for being a locally owned publication that, you know, did really good investigative journalism. I think that it's easy to glorify something that is no longer really there in the same way. But that's a classic post-industrial city. And there just wasn't advertising. There were no stores in downtown Youngstown to 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 even advertise in the local newspaper, right? And so I think that that's kind of a way to think about the larger sorting in American life around opportunity and geography that is bound up in the future of journalism. And what we're going to see is the winners in journalism are the same winners elsewhere, right? The big coastal cities, a couple of inland metropolitan And that's kind of, you can't talk about the future of journalism without thinking about what's happening in American society. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I see some of the things that are changing in the way I consume news. And this is one of the reasons the conversation is so fascinating, Mm -hmm. but I see like really simple things. Sometimes I'll, I'll click on like an article and that's just obviously like my way of consuming news is that I get a lot of news articles online. And sometimes I hit a paywall. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I don't remember that happening before. Yeah. I'm kind of curious about like the politics of how the news has been changing because what we're talking about makes a lot of sense from the perspective of, of wealth and of the idea of location and how news and um, journalistic outlets are their companies and they have to, you know, they have to make money, but I'm kind of really fascinated with this ideological difference that, that you're seeing in, in some newspapers. So let's begin with what you started with, which was that conversation about news exposure and paywalls. So when we've moved online, one of the big questions, one of the hopes really early on was we're going to, everybody's going to have access to the internet. We'll be in this wonderful, everybody will have access to information and no, no, no social inequality intersects with access to information. And, you know, we've seen this during COVID just with kids being able to to do their schoolwork. Right. And so your ability to look for news and information is really in the grand scheme of things, pretty unusual for when we look across the American public. Right. So you can skirt a paywall, but you can also find an alternative source 
But one of the things that's, and you can think about Starbucks, I think is a good way to think about it. A couple of years ago, Starbucks used to have the local paper when you went in to go get your coffee and you didn't need to buy it. And if you sat down to have coffee, you might just glance at the headlines. And that's something we call incidental exposure. You kind of weren't even, you walked in the news and you didn't even know it, right? As we become more of a high choice you know, where there's lots of media choices, lots of ways your attention's diverted online, people who are heightened consumers of news and information remain that way, but everybody else stops bumping into news in the same way. So while your social media feeds have tons of, you know, different articles on there, and there are people who will not see a single news article all day because that's just not what their friends are sharing, right? And that's not what they're going right. to. And so... The problem with paywalls, the problem with this high choice media environment, the problem with the nationalization of news and information is that there's a huge, you know, the people who are able to get that are in the end. That's the cultural capital of the rich, right? News for the rich, white and blue. That's for people who will pay for a paywall for the New York Times rather than looking for the aggregated version on some free website, right? Um, and so I think that that's kind of the first aspect that our exposure to news and information changes and it becomes harder to get that high quality news and information either because you have to pay or you have to really know where to look. So so let's let's kind of put that in one category. I understand how newspapers today have increasingly had to cater to um, people that have more money because those are the people that can financially support them. And with things going digital, they've had to adjust. But I kind of wonder about why it is that most of the mainstream media has a liberal okay. slant. Whereas I need to jump in on you here because I, I, I okay, disagree. Please. So... Um, one thing to really remember is that perceptions of partisanship that you have, that you bring with you to news organizations aren't necessarily what's in the content, right? So just remember that, that it's sort of in the eye of the beholder, right? If I had to look at national news outlets, I would actually say that they reinforce moderate centrism. This getting both sides of the story, that's super centrist, right? Regardless of, of what the quality of the argument is. But more than that, you know, maybe maybe there is a liberal stance in story selection. I don't think that if you look at data from the Shorenstein Center on elections that you would actually find that borne out. I would actually say that news organizations reproduce the status quo. And if you look at coverage around policing, and the reliance on police as the authoritative sources, right? What news organizations tend to do is they reify existing power structures. I do not see that as liberal, right? Um, so I do want to I do want to say that. And I would say at the local level, depending on the community you're in, if you're in Chicago, the South Side Weekly is a wonderful community-based liberal rag, right? If you are in one of the rural counties in Illinois. That community newspaper, depending on who owns it, is highly likely to be more conservative. I think you can look at the News Gazette as a good example of a newspaper that kind of has, and, and historically, who the woman, um, the people who owned it, the family that owned it, had a very sort of pro-business conservatism. And you can see that today, right? It's not anything that's explicitly necessarily said. 
but it is implicitly viewed in the selection of stories. So I think that it's it's a very when we start to talk about the partisanship of news outlets, I think you have to do it a bit more systematically based on content versus what you think, because what you think is what you think, right? So then with regard to how the media landscape has been changing politically, what would you want somebody listening who hadn't really thought about this to really walk away from? Yeah, I think what's really important is that I've heard a lot of people say that they don't read the Chicago Tribune anymore and they go straight to the New York Times or they tune into WCIA because it's the only way that they're going to get the most up-to-date news or maybe they'll even go to Spotted and Shambana. And for some of our listeners, uh, Shambana is champagne. Yeah, champagne, right, to actually figure out what's going on. What's happening a lot is that national politics, like that's a lot of drama and national news, also a lot of drama, Um, you know, and so people tend to tune in more now than ever before to national news outlets, whether they be far right or liberal, slight slant, depending on what you want to say. So there's a lot more attention to national news and national politics. And that in and of itself is a kind of polarization, right? It's a polarization away from the local to the national. And then on the local level, we're seeing really depleted local news and information. And some of these communities have never really had great journalism. I think it's really important to remember that not every community with a newspaper has been shaking up the mayor, right? But I do think that it's really hard to get super timely local news, especially in some of the smaller communities that people live in. And there are entire suburban communities that go completely uncovered because the large metropolitan news organization that used to have beat reporters now can't do that. And they're focusing and downscaling on the city, but the suburban newspapers don't have enough reporters to pick up the slack and television's trying to reach a giant market. And so it's really hard to stay attuned to what's actually happening in, in your community, particularly around orientation about politics and education. And so I really think that people need to acknowledge, like people just need to be aware that they're living in a very complicated media environment and to maybe take a step back and think about where am I getting my news from? Why am I getting my news from from this source? What are the reasons that this story even exists, right? And and who am I getting recommended this story by? Is it Facebook trying to guess what's going to keep me engaged or is it something shared by a family member who I know to be really knowledgeable or who I know to be really kooky, right? So I just think it's really important for anybody listening not to be more skeptical because skepticism in itself can be really problematic and lead to cynicism, but to be more aware and conscious and think not just about what they're consuming, but the source that it's coming from and and why. Yeah, so I think you bring up a really great point there. Um, but in terms of getting local news, if there, if 
we live in an area where local news coverage is something that you bring up the the Goldilocks paradigm. So those that are right in the middle of the size, like local enough to be relevant and intimate, but big enough to speak authoritatively. So those, those seem like a critical point. But what about areas that don't have this local news coverage that maybe how do you suggest that we move forward? Can we look to other countries, other places that do this better than maybe, let's say, in the U.S.? Yeah, that's a great question. The comparative angle is super interesting because the U.S. is gigantic, right, when you think about it. And our population is very widely dis- dispersed. And the distribution of political power and economic power across states is pretty uneven. And so I think we don't really map on well to like what's happening in a much smaller European country, right? There you're more likely to get variation based on party than you are on locale because when you can drive across a country in three hours, right? That's that's a we can we can barely do that in our state, right? So I think that that's that's a really interesting comparative question. The question of what to do. So people sometimes call these areas without local news, news deserts or media deserts. I have a bit of a problem with that idea of a news desert because it really implies that like without traditional news media, there is no news. And people have been producing their own news since the era of drum circles. So, it's, you know, it's just it looks. It looks different, right? In in some of the cases that you might stop at when you're driving in the state of Illinois, you'll see these really interesting bulletin boards that have everything that's going on in that town, right? So the question that becomes like, what do you do when there isn't a commercial market for local news and information? And I think that there are sort of two things. First, you can kind of unbundle journalism. So you can think about, what is it that professional journalists really need to do versus what are the information provision duties that, you know, the local school board or the sanitation department or the, you know, roads, uh, roads and infrastructure and construction, right? Parts of the city, municipal maintenance, right? What information provision can they do that journalists don't need to provide? And what should journalists themselves focus on? So if you have limited resources, Maybe it's time to focus on the most important things journalists can do better than anybody else. And that may be investigative reporting. It may be amazing photography of local events. I mean, you have to really think broadly about this. So I think that's one thing. The other thing, I know people think it's a little bit nuts when I propose this, but I actually think it's legit. I think that well, commercial media has failed in lots of places. We're not going to see some return to profitable commercial media, especially not digital first profitable media. I am not a huge believer in public media as the solution. I think it plays a really important role, especially in smaller communities. If I can interrupt, Nikki, when you say, can you define that for us? Public, public news media? Yeah, so public news media, right? So your local NPR station or your PBS station, right? It's nominally public. There, It's, it's super, super, super underfunded by the federal and state governments. So in lots of other countries, there's a sizable budget for public media that's paid for by the state. We've never really had that tradition in the U.S. It's not like the BBC, right? Our public media. 
And a lot of it depends on a member model where you become a member of your local public media station and, you know, you get a tote bag and all of that. Right. So, so that's the public media, right? It's not trying to make a profit per se. It's trying to, or make a profit for shareholders, at least it's just trying to do what it, it's a nonprofit, right? So I think that's that's kind of the public media side. And people, yeah, people think that that's really a good solution because it's nonprofit and it can be community-based and you can raise revenue from people in the community. And so it's an expression of like investing and needing journalism. Unfortunately, a lot of public media, a lot of, you know, there's a lot of baggage that comes with NPR, right? There's a lot of baggage that comes with PBS. And I think that having the government fight, you know, these fights happen every year. Remember, I don't know if you remember this, but Mitt Romney wanted to dump Big Bird, right? That was a big scandal for, for a bit, right? I don't remember this. Can you, what, what happened? So he was on the debate stage and he said that he wanted to defund public media and it was nothing against Big Bird because Big Bird was great, but the the news, you know, the public media in the United States was too liberal or something like that. And, you know, Big Bird did not take this well. This kind of state-supported media is constantly under attack. Um, in Pennsylvania, they just passed a budget that stripped funding from public radio and public television. So it's really contested politically. And most people view it as having a liberal slant, even though, again, I'm not sure that's accurate. Maybe it is. Is that the reason why it's so contested? Is that people feel like it has that liberal? Okay. And I think, okay. I think, look, if you listen to NPR, it's like news for and by people who care about the concerns that are often part of the liberal um, political agenda. I don't think NPR is trying to push people to take a particular opinion. Rather, they're playing to an audience that already has a particular opinion. I started studying NPR in 2007. So it's an organization I know, and I've studied public media, American um, American public radio. I've, I've spent a lot of time studying public media. And so, you know, just listening. And when you look at the audiences of public media, it's like, three times more likely to have donated to environmental causes and 1.5 times more likely to be in the C-suite of where they work, right? And it really paints a particular picture of a type of person who is listening to this stuff. And so, yeah, it's like a, a flashpoint for, for people who want to attack the news media. That's an easy one to attack because in the U.S. there isn't a lot of patience for state-sponsored media. So we've kind of gotten onto a little bit of a tangent, but I think it's an important one. And so I don't think this non-commercial approach is a really good one. And there are lots of problems also with this news philanthropy movement. And, you know, philanthropists have their pet causes right now. News is hot. <laughs> and certain types of news like investigative journalism, super hot, right? Uh, but it's hard to know if that's going to be sustainable and where that gets targeted is, 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 um, uh, really unevenly distributed. So what can we do, right? What can we do? I actually think we need to go back to a party-backed model, right? There's too much money in politics. If Democrats want to contest deep red places, maybe they should put some money to create local news organizations. Republicans are already doing that. And if there are 
statewide Republican digital first outlets. There are smaller localized outlets that read a little bit like content farms or places that are just producing content for the sake of producing content. Some people have called these pink slime sites. But I think that you're not getting, I don't think non-commercial media is the solution. I also don't think we can ever have a commercial media market. So let's go back to the party press of the 1800s. Bring it on. And so, so you are for the, the idea that like certain political leaning groups will simply, wait, I'm, I'm maybe I'm a little confused. What are you suggesting? I'm suggesting that Democratic donors start backing hyper-local media at the county level. That is what I am suggesting. Ah, I see. Okay. Because Um, is your reasoning that Republicans are already doing this? So that is why this is essentially going to be a partisan endeavor? Two things. Yes, Republicans are already doing this, but I don't see another financially sustainable way of getting news in every community other than using money from one of the most moneyed industries in this country, which is politics. So I think there are two reasons. We have a failed commercial system. I'm not super gung-ho on the non-commercial system. What's left, (laughs) right? And party back press is that. So I think that that's my intervention. I think that that's a really, you know, people are really skittish about it. And part of that is some of that right-wing media is really distorted. and. Democrats largely still trust the institutional news media, right? And they largely still trust it. And so why would you need a Democrat-backed press, right? And that's the trouble, right? That's the trouble right there. The other side of it, too, is that a lot of liberals are really frustrated that big national news organizations like the New York Times or the Washington Post won't explicitly come out and say, we support social justice. We are going to be actively anti-racist. And these news organizations really are more about democratic liberalism, like free speech, you know, a democracy is important, but they don't go as far as to say, yeah, we're not going to quote the police chief because it is really reinforcing white supremacy. So we're not going to do that. Right. And so liberals are completely still on some level unsatisfied by the institutional news media. Well, go and put this in communities, start that stuff at the local level. And there's so many mega donors to the Democratic Party. I think we can make it happen. And the model for this is already happening on the right. So you're not a fan necessarily of like the the government itself saying, hey, here's more public money for journalism. Here's more public money for independent newspapers. Yeah. I'm not a big fan of that, no. And that's different from philanthropy, right? Because philanthropy is coming from foundations, right? Like the Carnegie Foundation or the McCormick Foundation, some of these big foundations and potentially like individual donors, right? And so philanthropy is another non-commercial approach. Um, Nonprofit news outlets is another non-commercial approach. I work for a think tank. I, I do policy work for a group called the Open Markets Institute and their Center for Journalism and Liberty, where we're trying to reclaim the power of markets to do what the markets are supposed to do. And that's not monopoly. And that's not, you know, huge media conglomerates. It's 
thinking about ways that you could have independent, you have use the markets to foster independent media. I don't know. I mean, I, I guess that like, look, that every academic enters with a certain sort of set of norms that they really sort of come back to. And for me, that's kind of my grounding. That's why I'm so sort of curious. And I question some of these non-commercial things, right? And nonprofit. So that's kind of, that's, so I guess that's something you have to understand about me, right? Okay. Okay. I guess I've always felt like maybe I've heard, and I I don't know if I, I have nothing I can point to to specifically back this up, but I've always thought like, oh, that seems like a logical way to go. Like specifically where the state funds like more independent journalistic endeavors. But to someone who like isn't really familiar with a lot of these things, how would you explain saying, oh, you know, actually, like we need to to do the market. This is not a thing that can be publicly funded. Let's just play this out. Can you imagine if President Trump, who regularly referred to the institutional news media like the New York Times and CNN as fake news, were in charge of setting money towards public journalism, publicly funded journalism. That is somewhat terrifying for me to think about, somebody who hates the news media being in charge of that funding. So that's that's my big pushback. And you can even see this at the local level around libraries because libraries are so incredibly important uh, when it comes to being a hub for community news and information. But they actually can be flashpoints because A, lots of people don't want their tax dollars to support libraries. But there's actually a case I talk about in the book. Um, it's in Citrus County, Florida, where there was this huge fight where county commissioners refused to approve a digital subscription for the library system to the New York Times because they thought it was fake news. Do you want to put your media in the hands of People like that. So, so I mean, I think this is a, a big debate. I, again, in the academy, you know, and I began, like I said, with studying NPR. That was the first news organization I ever really kind of went in deep to study. So I do think it's, a, you know, I do think public radio is really, really important. I think that, you know, there's a lot of good being done there. But I, I just worry. I just really worry. That's me, right? It's a very unpopular opinion in the academy. Very unpopular. (laughs) So other people are, and not to say like, obviously, you know, who is more or less correct. I'm I'm just kind of curious as to what the landscape is. Because to me, you know, as someone who's not an expert in this, it always just seemed like an intuitive, like, oh, it's just kind of one of those things that we as, you know, Americans maybe don't fund as much as, as other, as other, for example, countries like, oh, I see other countries that, you know, invest more in these kinds of public services and they tend to be a little bit more robust in some capacities. So I just naturally think like, oh, like, yeah, it makes sense to me that this might be uh, another thing that Americans just tend to underfund. And I, I believe I've heard some political psychologists talk about this a little bit. I think Rob Willer mentions, for example, that one of the things that he's keen on is the possibility of the United States just increasing public funds for these kinds of things. So it just yeah. kind of makes intuitive sense for me, but I don't know what everybody else is saying. Well, so, I mean, I think that, again, not super popular, but I actually used to do um, and hope to do some more uh, travel for the U.S. State Department on behalf of just kind of going around and talking about developments in the American news media. And as part of that, I would go to right the public media 
station in Slovenia or somewhere else, right? Like in, 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 in DC, there is a big hub of international public media, like, you know, IT, the Irish television and Al Jazeera, which is sort of interestingly public, Deutsche Welle in Germany, right? So I have some pretty decent familiarity, both seeing some of this stuff on the ground and seeing it in its sort of DC instantiation. And what's really interesting is like, actually some of this is very heavily publicly funded and so, and very highly unionized. And as a result, it's very slow to change. Programming can become irrelevant because a lot of the programming is, especially in non-English places where the languages are in danger of dying. So like Slovenia, right? Not a lot of people, there's not a huge market or need to speak, you know, Slovenian, right? So the, there's, and, and same with like, you know, in, in the Nordic countries, like you're going to turn on, you're going to hear language in your native language. And so part of that mission is to do programming. Canada, there's a big joke in Canada because a lot of Canadian television that's produced by the Canadian public broadcasting systems, like the dramas are pretty awful. Every so often there's a big hit, right? Like Freaks and Geeks, which is a cult favorite, right? Um, or, or Kids in the Hall or something like that, another cult favorite. But there's a big joke that like all of the movies are really terrible, right? There's also, you know, there's there are different kinds of missions. Um, they can be very slow to innovate. Um, in some countries like Egypt, actually getting a job with the public media system is the, akin to getting like a cushy civil service job. And so I want to be really careful about over glamorizing public media elsewhere. You know, we can talk about public funding for lots of things like health and, you know, education. I would have maybe a very different reaction. But, you know, from what I've seen, even in sort of Western democratic countries in Australia, right, when the administration comes in that's hostile to the ABC, it is felt countrywide. And so that is, that's sort of my general beef. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. It's, it's, it's a beef, right? It's a beef. And, 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 but I do think I am somebody who goes inside newsrooms. And so I see this having studied these newsrooms or, or actually also sometimes been a guest and sometimes as a source. Right. And so I think I've got a pretty decent sense of how this all plays out on the ground that maybe people who are looking at it in a more idealistic kind of 200 foot above sea level sort of view have a different reaction. Got it. Okay. Another thing that this I wonder about, you know, we, we think about these kinds of issues from an academic kind of research-based perspective, but I'm also kind of curious about how your work has changed how Nikki the person interacts with news media. Because I'm always thinking about, you know, the, okay, what's out there and what research is there and how does this kind of change, you know, the way I should you know, behave. And so you, you've actually dashed one of my hopes of someday being able to afford <laughs> funding, uh, you, know, a, you know, buying a subscription to, to NPR, one of my hopes, checking that off. I love public media. I do. I want to be perfectly clear. I just don't think that increased funding to public media is the solution to saving the news. I want to be really clear about that. Okay. Important distinction. Having said that, I'm wondering what are the, the kinds of behavioral practices that your research has led you to? So I think what is really interesting is less sort of my news consumption behavior because, you know, I was somebody who wanted to be a journalist and clearly 
didn't make that happen in my adult life. But I was always really aware that I could end up working in some tiny town. Like one of the newspapers I applied to was in Las Cruces, New Mexico. So I've always been somebody who really consciously tries to watch local television and read whatever local news is coming my way, as well as national news and magazines. So I just kind of have like a wide breadth. And I think that's just sort of something because of the stuff I care about, right? But in terms of like what has changed in terms of now that I know about all this stuff, I hack my own algorithms. So what I try to do on my Facebook is I try to kind of mess up what Facebook thinks it wants from me. So I will follow the pages and personalities of people I vehemently disagree with. I actually started hijacking my email as well because I wanted to make sure I could see what both parties were sending out to potential donors on their email listserv. So making a $1 donation to somebody or at least getting on the mailing lists because it's really important to have that surveillance and that mixed up feed. And so I think that's something that I don't know if I would have done if I weren't really conscious of how this stuff is being targeted. So, and I would actually really recommend that for everybody. I would recommend that everybody who uses social media to really kind of just mess with their feed by clicking likes on stuff they don't really like just to make sure they're getting a good sense. Like it's surveillance of the media landscape. It's really easy to forget what's going on. You know, sometimes I'll watch a debate, like a presidential debate, I'll start on C-SPAN, then I'll go to Fox, then I'll go to NBC. And sometimes it's even like camera angles that tell you something, right? And so I think consuming a wide range of perspectives, but also hacking the algorithmic machine by my own sort of redirections, I think has been something really important. I would encourage everybody to mess with because you don't know why Facebook or Twitter or Apple News is optimizing some of this stuff for you, but give it as many inputs as possible so it doesn't it doesn't get it. Right, right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I actually do. Sometimes I look at Google News and I, I hear that you're not so much a fan of the, the news as being curated by Google and Facebook. I'm kind of starting to see why. But one of the things that I usually do is I'll scroll down and I'll look to see for a particular news article, like what the headlines look like for different news outlets, specifically surveying my kind of naive understanding of what are the liberal and what are the relatively conservative news Mm -hmm. outlets. And let's be real, there are definitely liberal news outlets, right? Huffington Post, right? That are self-identifying as progressive and liberal, right? And there are definitely like red state, right? That, that are digital first, you know, Slate would be a good liberal news organization, right? So so there, I don't want to say that there isn't partisan media. There's certainly a healthy national partisan media system, right? It just isn't quite the same in newspapers, right? So, so that's, kind of, I think, the difference here. I actually pay a lot of attention to the trending lists that news organizations will put to so like most emailed. I think that's really interesting. It's very imperfect for lots of reasons because there's lots of stuff they can't track. Like if I copy and paste a link into an email, that's like dark social. There's no way for the New York Times to know I shared that article, right? Um, and that's actually the term. That's the technical term is dark social, right? I love. So I think those trending lists, I think, are really interesting because you, you know, it's interesting to know what news and information people are consuming. I also spend a lot of time because I'm in news organizations pretty much all the time. I've been a little bit less so during COVID, but is looking really critically at the story selection. 
So sometimes it's really funny because I can look at the webpage or the homepage of the New York Times and be like, yep, I know why that's there. And I know why they did that headline because I've sat behind the people who mm. produce the homepage. You know, I know what's going into it. And so that's always funny when I can kind of reverse engineer in my head, like why something became the story that it became. And it makes me very, it's on some level, very disturbing that I can imagine the thinking happening in the page one meetings of various news organizations. Cause I've just been there and I know the personalities it, it makes for some dispiriting days. So Nikki, I'm glad you brought this up again, tying it back to your experience being behind the scenes. Have there been any moments during that type of research that have been really profound in terms of shaping the way either you think about news production or even how you interpret? Um, I mean, you just mentioned like you, you reverse engineer. Have you carried any of that with you from, from there on out? Was there anything really profound? I don't know because I've been in so many different newsrooms and I've had the, quite frankly, the pleasure of talking to so many journalists. I mean, I will say one of the neatest experiences I had was doing field work at Al Jazeera in Doha and Qatar and just kind of the weird experience of being a Western woman working in a place where all, or kind of observing in a place where all the clerical staff was work Qatari and the upper management structure was a strange mix of old school British BBC people to also some folks that had longstanding ties to various regimes, shall we say, in the Middle East. And just seeing all of these conflicting kind of worldviews and approaches to thinking about news content and what mattered was really, really, really interesting. Some of this of what I've seen has been harder to really tease out in actual words. And sometimes it's more about the images that you kind of remember from a place. And so when I wrote my first book, I had to keep asking people at the times like, what color is the carpet on the second floor? Are the stairs open or closed? Like, do the blinds really shut when it's, you know, sunny out, right? Like, are they mechanical? I just want to be clear on that. Like, which way are the elevators sorting people? Like these kinds of, and I think that paying really careful attention to the built environment is really, really important. So it was really funny when I went into the headquarters of a major leading U.S. national news organization that has many newspapers across the United States. So I'll just leave it at that. And it was very cute because they had tried to set up like whiteboards and kind of like convening spaces. And they were trying to like put their old news building into like a startup scene. Right. And so it was cute. Cause it's like, I'm sorry, you guys are like a print newspaper organization that is really struggling with basic ad technology, but you're trying so hard to mimic the behavioral sort of best practices of what tech companies are doing. So it's, it's, it's paying attention, I think. And, and this is really important for anybody interested in doing field work, the built environment is often and sometimes even more telling than anything you actually say to somebody. And even wardrobe choices are really interesting. So you can tell a lot about how hmm. people feel about where they work based on what they wear. And so um, in some newsrooms, people will show up to work, especially the men wearing polo shirts that have like the newspaper like logo or the news organization logo 
on their shirt. Or you'll see in New York, like the New York Post has this amazing tote bag and it's now like kind of vintage. But, you know, people who work at the New York Post, a lot of women like still still pull that out. Right. And so so I think like these are like the very quiet details that are the stuff that really tell you about the values and, and the orientations of what's coming, like all the input coming into what is shaping journalism. It's not always about information. It's not always about the interviews being done. It's not even always conscious. You know, what does it mean to walk into an editor's meeting where everybody is white? That's not something that's said, hey, it's a bunch of white people sitting around deciding what's going to be on the front of the Chicago Tribune or any other, you know, many other news organizations in the United States would have that experience, right? But it's it's the unstated observable that is extraordinarily telling. So I don't know if there's one moment. Mm-hmm. I would say the like craziest fieldwork was definitely in Doha because you woke up and you looked out and there was sand everywhere. <laughs> I'm just like, what? I'm not used to this. But but I learned so much from it. Yeah, I think that's interesting. I think it's an interesting story. I like how you brought it together as like a collective experiences and you know, it's it's a different perspective and things that we as consumers of news do not get to <laughs> get to see or understand. I say this in my book, but newsrooms are places of power that ordinary people rarely get to go into. Like how many times has the average person visited a television news studio? How many times, like sometimes people would go on field trips to like see the printing press of a newspaper because it's like super interesting and fascinating to watch. But how many times have you, an ordinary person, sat in a page one meeting at a national news organization? And it was something that I actually used to take my students to do. We would come in and visit, you know, the Washington Post or go in and visit NPR just to like demystify You know, what, like, these are just ordinary people. They're going to go eat lunch. You know, (laughs) they're worried about what time they're going to pick up their kids. There's no media agenda. And I think that that's really important to be able, and that's sort of why I started doing the kind of work I do. One other thing I I, I was kind of curious about your perspective on was it feels like the conversation has focused a lot on larger news outlets, but I, I keep thinking about like smaller uh, news outlets and smaller communities. And, you know, assuming that the smaller news outlets aren't going to, uh, or the smaller communities aren't going to be able to, you know, change how the Democratic Party, for example, is funding, mm-hmm. um, you know, certain news sources in their, in their regions. I think a lot of small, my understanding, I grew up in a, a really, really small town yeah. in Pennsylvania. And a lot of the people from my hometown, particularly like the folks that are in, affiliated with the high school and the, mm-hmm. the local community and its ongoings are really concerned with what's been happening to their you know, local news landscape. Yeah. Um, so the, the, the regional paper there, and, and the town nearest where I grew up was was purchased by uh, a community kind of newspaper holdings yeah. company. You know, they're kind of frustrated because they used to see the newspaper as kind of a megaphone through which they could, you know, produce news articles that would eventually be perhaps picked up by larger mm-hmm. news uh, art companies. And I'm just kind of wondering, like, what what can you know, smaller communities do? I think, you know, you're talking a lot about what is happening in every county that is non-urban in the United States right now, and even neighborhoods in big cities, 
right? That are no longer getting covered, right? Think about all of the aldermen that aren't having their elections systematically covered in Chicago, right? And Mm. so like, this is really important. I think that one of the most promising things I've seen is actually comes out of Chicago, out of a news organization called City Bureau. And they do two things really, really well. The first is they've redefined what news is. And they kind of like whenever they do a story, they actually do these public forums. And they're involved in helping people learn how to fill out forms to, you know, get a particular type of credit from from the city, right? So, So they're combining kind of their journalism with active engagement in the community, but they do something else that's really interesting, which is they train people to take notes at public meetings. And so Hmm. like people actually, a lot of people go to public meetings. I mean, remember on Parks and Rec, they would, you know, show those public forums with Leslie Nope having to answer to all of these people. People do show up. And so the question is, can those people do something in a way that compensates for the loss of local media, maybe with just a little bit of training or something like that. Maybe they're, they're sharing it on a community website or posting it on the local, as much as I hate it, Facebook page, right? And so I think that that's one thing. And I, I think that you don't need, I mean, one of the weird things about being a journalist is, yes, I would like everybody to go to the University of Illinois journalism you know, our journalism department, you know, like we'd have as many majors as as we could hold. Right. But the reality is Mm -hmm. you don't need a journalism degree to be a journalist. Right. And, and that means the barriers to entry, if you rethink what journalists do and what they contribute can be lower. And so I think there's a lot of, one of the things I've been trying to work on next is thinking about how we can maybe look at news resilience. So what might make some communities more than others more resilient to the loss of local news and our traditional local news? And some of it might be, you know, really great high school in that town. So the high school teachers can, you know, figure out a way to, you know, put something together at the high school. Right. So I think there are a lot of opportunities it's it's actually really interesting that you say that because uh, the person that I, I'm thinking about who's most vocal about these concerns is a high school teacher <laughs> who's organized her school's uh, journalism right. program. You know, I just want to be really clear that we've had this really interesting conversation around public media in the United States. And I just want to say, like, I think the public media is really important. I love the mission driven journalism. And I think some of the most creative storytelling it's done in public radio today. I just want to be really clear that it's, I don't see that as the solution to this crisis in journalism, but I see mm-hmm. it is a really important part of the news ecosystem. I want to be really clear about that. But I also just want to thank you all for, for chatting with me. I mean, you know, the crisis in journalism is something that affects every single person living in the United States. I don't think that there's a more crisis that couples on to so many other different issues in American social life than the availability of news and information and the ability to create a sense of a shared culture, which is what journalism enables us to do. So thank you for chatting. I really appreciate it.